Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. In the 1970s, about 20 million Americans earned their paycheck from factory work. Well, today, about 12.5 million workers remain in the industry. Here to tell us more about manufacturing in the United States and his movie, American Made Movie, is Vincent Vittorio. He is the director. Vincent, thank you very much for being with us. Hey, Pim. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you just start off by telling us why did you decide to make this movie? Well, my co-director and I both had kind of a connection to manufacturing. Um, My wife's uh, parents were from Detroit and worked in many of the auto manufacturers there. And then uh, my business partners also was uh, in Georgia, Um, a lot of the plants there that ended up closing down. And we started to realize that, you know, with the power of documentary filmmaking, we can kind of get people to really understand that while manufacturing isn't what it was, that there's still viable jobs for manufacturing. And so we produced a film that talks about kind of that, you know, um, spirit of manufacturing that we can awaken with with, uh, encouraging people to buy from this country, from their community, and their home state. Speak, if you can, about some of the specifics, because we know a lot of work that might have been done by human beings is now done by robots or is automated. But manufacturing employment, as uh, evidenced by your movie, can still lead to a positive economic outlook. No, definitely. You know, there's a ripple effect that happens when you have a um, a line of manufacturing that's much different than what it was 20 years ago. I mean, you think of the way that things have advanced and the way that um, a lot of these jobs are much more technology-based with having a background in technical education as opposed to being on a line where we're just putting a part together. And I think, you know, that really goes to the education end of things. I mean, in your state of New York, there's a great program, the P-TECH program, that, you know, really gets kids to understand kind of um, the importance of a career pathway. And I think if we can have more things like that across this country to get kids to really understand that, you know, we don't all have to graduate with a liberal arts degree, but we can have a job that gets us kind of a foot forward with thinking about advanced manufacturing or careers um, to kind of, uh, I guess, respond to the skills gap we're starting to see. Well, a lot of uh, manufacturers, uh, indeed the Manufacturers Association, uh, National Association of Manufacturers, Uh, a a big supporter of President Donald uh, Trump, they speak about tax reform and how that could spur infrastructure spending. Is that also part of the the picture when, you know, you made this movie, you got to find what are the things that are going to make manufacturing economically viable? You know, well, to start with the Trump side of things, I think that it's it's kind of one of those, I don't know what it's going to mean today versus tomorrow. I mean, so I think that um, I don't know where he's going to bring things, but I do think that tax reform can definitely incentivize people to make things here and to give them a reason to not feel like they can go overseas. Um, I just, you know, I, I really think it takes a lot of bipartisanship to come together to actually approve that on all sides. But what you do see is things like the Foxconn plant, you know, in Wisconsin. And I mean, 
mean, that's, that's a huge thing to see the Foxconn that we always look at as being a foreign entity of sorts that is now going to be manufacturing things on, you know, our home soil. And I think that's, that's a beautiful thing, and you see that with a lot of auto manufacturers. So I think that we need to give them reasons that aren't just about the tax code, but about communities reaching out and making them feel like the, the, the ripple effect that's going to not only um, help the state, but help their, their, um, you know, their, their manufacturing, their brand, their, their company. And as far as uh, examples in the movie, maybe just give people some idea. Well, one, one really big company, which, which I've grown to love through making the film, so I'm partly biased, is New Balance. So New Balance sneakers, you know, they, they make sneakers in the United States. Not all of them, but a good amount of them, and it's grown tremendously in time. It's, it's actually kind of ironic that um, the people that are buying the most America-made sneakers are overseas, which I think that goes back to say something about what that brand of Made in America means. You know, if, if we can't look at that as we go to the big box store and think that this is something important that we make things here, but other countries are noticing it, you know, we need to take, take interest in that. But um, New Balance is a great example. And, you know, the other one, there's based a, there's in a uh, based in Brighton, right? I mean, they're based in, yes. Bo- in Boston, home to uh, Bloomberg 1061 and uh, Bloomberg 1330. So yeah, th- that is certainly a, a feature of uh, of the sort of the made in America, made in the USA label is that it is prestigious outside the United States. What about making it prestigious inside the United States? You know, that takes a lot with the marketing. I mean, you've seen that the last two Super Bowls where you see that Made in America ad that comes up. But, I mean, if we can get people today to realize kind of what it means to have a personal relationship with a product we buy or with a brand, I think we can do something. I mean, LeBron James, great example, right? He's getting paid, you know, millions of dollars to endorse anything and people are going to flock to it. I think if we can do that same thing with this Made in America brand, I mean, can you imagine if Robert Downey Jr. had like an Iron Man mask and he took it off and gave a pitch for the idea that like this was made right here in the USA? I mean, like those are the kind of things that we need to really kind of do to, to spark that because there's no doubt we're not making, you know, good quality stuff. I mean, you can go buy a desk at Ikea for a quarter of the price at the, you know, expensive furniture store, but, you know, the, the money you're paying, it, it comes across with the product you're getting. Things in America are made um, to last, and I think that's something that I think I feel very passionate about with everything that I purchase. All right, but having, having said that, uh, do you find that there's a contradiction because if you go to a big box retailer, you're looking for the best price. You're not necessarily going to put the item or the palette of items back on the shelf because it's made somewhere else. And that is what has fueled uh, a lot of innovation in the United States in terms of, let's say, retailing or even making consumer products affordable. No, you're right. I mean, it's very hard because we live in this kind of throwaway society where we don't plan on buying a couch that's going to last us more than a couple of years. I mean, and I think that's kind of a deeper question about like why we buy and the way we buy. But I think that um, ultimately it, it comes to supply and demand. If enough people are looking for American-made products, if enough people are kind of looking for that brand um, and making sure they look at the label, it, it can change things. I mean, it's happened with the organic food movement. I mean, can you imagine, um, you know, 10 years ago, if I would have said that um, organic foods would be like they are now? I mean, you could never find them everywhere. Now, I mean, you've got truck stops, you know, and they're filled with 
the healthy option. So I think it's because consumers demanded it. And so if consumers can demand um, with their purchase power American-made goods, then I think that the big box stores could start to see more of those coming there. Give you, give you 15 seconds. Is there one product that you wish was made in the United States but isn't? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think the Apple computer. I mean, that, that's a really big one because it was, it, was, uh, it was grown out of, you know, my state of California and with the, the, the engineering, the, the, the prototypes, everything about it. We should make it here. I mean, we're making enough money with that. And I know that's something President Trump and even, you know, former President Obama was trying to do. I think that there's certain things we should really try to make here. And I think it's, it's important. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Vincent Vittorio, he is the director of American Made Movie. All right, let's turn our attention now to uh, investments and uh, Mike Mullaney. Mike is uh, joining us from Boston Partners. He is the director of global market research. Mike, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, You know, I wonder if we could start off with you've listed a couple of very important things. You've got things such as, you know, the Trump bump, uh, issues having to do uh, with oil, uh, the Japanese market. And I'm wondering if we could kind of look at Japan first and then work our way back to the United States, because the the prime minister, Shinzo Abe, has called an election. And, yes, um, and yeah, he has a snap election. Yes, and to us, it's reminiscent, obviously, of what Theresa May did in June, and Ex- we're a little bit leery. Yeah, a little Ex- bit leery about that. You got exactly, exactly. Now this is uh, scheduled for October the twenty second, and uh, he's been in power for about five years, which is pretty long if you're a Japanese prime minister. Uh, but he is going to be going uh, against. He's going to be opposed by the Party of Hope. Now, this is this new conservative alliance, which is led by the populist mayor of Tokyo, Yuriko Koike, and she has previously served as Minister of Defense. And I'm wondering if you could describe what would happen if, indeed, Shinzo Abe uh, was returned to power with a reduced majority, or indeed didn't even make it past the post. Well, you'd have to question, once again, the progress of, uh, of Abenomics or Abenomics in general, if he was going to be able to push through his reforms that he's been relatively successful for, if you look at both the economy uh, and the markets in general in Japan. So I think that would be the, the primary question mark, whether or not uh, he would be able to proceed with, um, with the same kind of vigor that he's had up uh, for the last you know, two to three years that that's been in place right now. Uh, looking at the Japanese stock market uh, in dollar terms, up about twelve and a quarter percent so far this year. Yeah, and the the key with the you know the Japanese market is that investors basically have been burned so many times in the past about Japan. There's still kind of that wary eye about the market in general and the economy in general because we've had not just one but probably at least two decades of the you know the lost decades, not just a lost decade as far as Japan is concerned. That goes for the economy and more or less for the markets in general. So I think it's, you know we have to have a a, a proof statement coming from uh, from this type of a snap election that we can. And continue to see the improvement that we've seen, like I said, most recently from both the economy and the markets. Yeah, well, I was even thinking, you know, that uh, Governor Kuroda of the Bank of Japan, his reappointment is scheduled for 2018, but uh, that could change if we get a new leader in Japan. 
No question. And we, you know, we, if we were to err on both uh, the Bank of Japan and on the Federal Reserve, we would like to see status quo, that being Kuroda staying in place as well as Yellen staying in place, just the stability of the market. I think Kuroda's done a, a magnificent job. He's probably been the most, uh, if you want to call it aggressive, and if not just, uh, um, you know, more or less uh, creative of, of the, the, the central bankers, uh, in the world, and once again has done a, a good job of, uh, of stabilizing asset prices and stabilizing the economy in general. Well, you're being diplomatic because some investors might say that he actually fixes the prices of assets because what, they have about 33% of the JGB market and like three quarters of all uh, Japanese uh, exchange traded funds that are funds, on equities. Right. They, yeah. They're owned yeah. by like the I central said. bank. That's why I use the word creative for it. It's something a little bit out of the norm that we've seen from other central bankers. But, um, you know, it's it's a little bit reminiscent of what Mario Draghi said. It's whatever it takes. And I think Kuroda has basically done that. Okay. So you help me circle back. We're going to go to uh, Europe now and Mario Draghi, the European uh, central bank. Tell me what you uh, what, what your thoughts are, are there, because I know that later on in the week, I believe, uh, you know, we're going to get some news from the central bank of. Of, uh, of Europe, but also we're going to get the Fed minutes. What are you What are you going to take away from Europe first? Well, Europe is going to be key. Is I think there's 26. I think is the meeting in Europe, and once again, the eyes are going to be focused on exactly what's going to happen with the balance sheet tapering program from the ECB. What we're wary about once again is that that's going to coincide with potentially the Fed, you know, uh, diminishing and, and dropping their balance sheet this uh, this month as well. So we're going to have a, a twofer for the month of uh, of October potentially as far as balance sheet um, retracement, I guess you could say, is concerned. And uh, we're leery about that because this is still a grand experiment. You know, on the way up, it was a grand experiment on the balance sheet explosions that we've seen around the world, and we're a little bit leery and that to, to think that we we don't want to be not naive to think there's not going to be some kind of symmetry between the um, the benefit of asset prices on the upside as balance sheets grew from the central banks versus as they shrink them, um, there'll be no impact. And I think that's where you know people might be a bit naive. A lot of you've heard this from um, Jamie Dimon saying that you've got to watch this given that it is the grand experiment as far as balance sheets are concerned. All right. Well, as someone I know who's got a lot of experience in fixed income markets, put that hat on and tell us what do you think about the uh, the balance sheet unwind? And that gives us an opportunity to turn to the United States. What do you think that's going to do to yields? For example, we got the 30-year today basically unchanged, 2.89%, the 10-year at 235. Uh, two, two aspects of the yield story. So the first one would be, like you say, as far as the balance sheet. Uh, you know, the Fed owns, I believe it's 29% of all mortgage-backed securities and also 17% of all treasuries right now. So they have been, obviously, um, in most recent years, the, the marginal buyer that's been out there for both the treasury market and the mortgage-backed market. So as that unwinds, it's going to have, you're going to have to find the next marginal buyer. I don't know if it's going to be Japan. I don't know if it's going to be China. But someone's going to have to take up the slack that uh, that is going to become apparent from the lack of Fed buying. So that's number one. Rates should be higher to, to track that next marginal buyer. Two, once again, you've got to go back to inflation. And, you know, it's been a 
a quandary that, uh, that Janet Yellen has been talking about for quite some time. We did see some pressure, obviously, on average hourly earnings that came in in the report on Friday back up to 2.9%. The question becomes, is that going to stick a knot, or is that, once again, just a byproduct of the hurricanes that we saw during the course of the September reporting period, where lower wage earners fell out of the, the survey and therefore biased the numbers upwards. So we've still got a month to figure out if it was just a temporary factor or not. But ultimately, it's going to be inflation that's going to drive where interest rates go. Um, I don't think that uh, the Fed itself can get too aggressive as far as pushing up the overall structure of rates. Thanks very much, Mike Mullaney. He is the Director of Global Market Research for Boston Properties. We now call upon Nick Heyman of William Blair, global industrial infrastructure expert, to tell us about General Electric. Nick, always a pleasure. Uh, what do you make of the moves by John Flannery, taking the reins earlier from Jeffrey Immelt, a new CFO, and four vice chairs, well, three, four if you count the CFO, leaving the company? Yeah, we have uh, obviously a lot of uh, change being implemented in a very short time period uh, by John Flannery, and it uh, is leaving no stone unturned. But with regards to, you know, uh, Jeff Bornstein, the former CFO, and uh, Beth Comstock and um, John Rice, I think that, uh, you know, John is is really trying to find, if you will, uh, representatives of what he sees perhaps is more of the initiatives he's going to focus on going forward versus those that were really um, stewards of of Jeff Immelt, the former CEO and chairman. All right. So what are some of the uh, strategy points that John Flannery is going to rely on? Well, I mean, very simplistically, he's very uh, focused near term on being able to help um, improve the cash flow from operating activities um, that uh, this year, you know, clearly have been under pressure. We think um, they may not even reach the low end of their 12 to $14 billion target. And um, that reflects stepped up uh, restructuring uh, on a cash basis across all aspects of the company's operations. But I think we're going to lay out a clear plan to improve that by 50 or 60 percent by uh, later this decade to 18 to 20 billion dollars. GE needs 15, 16 billion on a normalized capital spend of um, two and a half to three uh, to be able to support uh, its operations and pay its eight billion dividend. Let's just go through some of the uh, the, the items, perhaps in a, just a little bit more detail. Uh, maybe getting ready for that November thirteenth meeting. I believe that John Flannery is going to be addressing uh, investors. Uh, number one, you write, you talk about operationally weaker end market demand for GE Power, transportation, and oil uh, and transportation, right? Yeah, and the oil and gas. Right. So you have when you're looking to reset, uh, which is one of the exercises they'll go through the two dollar 2018 um, target uh, by Jeff Immelt. Um, he'll look to operationally adjust that for the weaker end market conditions you just mentioned. He's going to have some changes in the business portfolio, I'm sure, for smaller businesses. But he's also going to have a tremendously larger, I think, amount of cost out, $3 billion or more. And then, in turn, he's going to reset the accounting so that it will include you know, the full impact of uh, contract asset investments as well as their pension costs. 
Okay, so that and then you're talking that would lead you right into your second point, which is the portfolio pruning, getting rid of businesses that don't necessarily meet their cost of capital. Yes. No, there's definitely some peripheral businesses that I would call calls on the future, um, Pim, that in turn were funded under Jeff. But under John, if you're not earning your cost of capital, you're probably not on the team. These are not big parts of the company, but smaller adjunct businesses related to their core um, industrial operations. All right. And you also mentioned that you previously mentioned the accounting. So is is there anything more we need to know there? No, I mean, the accounting obviously has been, there's four different sets of earnings that GE presents, and I think we're going to streamline this down to something on the order of, you know, gap accounting, plus or minus um, one-time positive and negative items for restructuring or gains. But he's really got to focus on getting this uh, cash flow from operating activities up, which includes reducing the capital spending to this normalized level of two and a half to three billion from three and a half to four this year. He's got to narrow the focus of GE's uh, digital operation so that in turn that can reduce its um, R&D and capital spending intensity. He's got to take and reduce the contract asset investments. And lastly, he's got to work to shore up the $19 billion contractual portion of the company's $31 billion pension deficit. All right. Given all that and your outperform rating on the shares, uh, is there a connection between all of this activity and Nelson Peltz, Ed Garden, uh, and Tryon Fund Management? Well, Tryon has been involved for quite some time with um, GE. And um, I think at this point, uh, clearly um, giving them one of the seats on the board as uh, Deere's former uh, CEO stepped down, um, gives them an opportunity to continue to be a constructive partner in helping John accelerate uh, the transformation of GE. All right. Having said that, though, Nick, uh, what do you think that John would prefer to inherit in terms of how GE operates? I think he's trying to change what is not a broken company, but a bloated company, and in turn, trying to go across all aspects of the cost structure of the company, whether it's the new headquarters building, whether it's planes, whether it's cars for their management team. There's no stone left unturned, Pim. And just to finally, uh, Nick, you know, tell people how long you've been covering GE and how you see the company coming out from all of this. Well, we've been following it for about 34 years. And um, what we're seeing here is a dichotomy between perhaps um, the focus on the earnings reset for sell-side analysts typically versus on the owners of the shares, a need to have visual improvement for actionable steps to lift the cash flow so you can sustain the dividend. And if they see that, I think the investors are likely to ultimately um, re-rate the yield from 4% currently to probably something like 3% over the next year. All right. Well, we're going to have to wait and see what happens, and we're going to count on you. I know you're going to probably be at that November 13th meeting, uh, get more details, and we could check in with you then. Thanks very much. Uh, Nick Heyman from uh, William Blair, expert when it comes to global industrial uh, infrastructure shares.
U.S. economist Richard Thaler, one of the founding fathers of behavioral economics, has won this year's Nobel Prize for Economics. And here to tell us more about this winner is Simon Kennedy. He is our editor for Brexit, amongst other things. Simon, thanks for joining me here in the studio. What does it say about the state of economics when the winner of this year's prize has this quote, conventional conventional economics assumes that people are highly rational, super rational, and unemotional, they can calculate like a computer and have no self-control problems, meaning that that does not exist. Really, it's taken until 2017 for people to get the stamp of approval that emotions are what drive markets as much as markets? Well, I think we've seen uh, some uh, element in the past. You saw Daniel Kahneman and and Robert Schiller win in the past, uh, um, but but I think it's very important for the behavioral economics uh, field that Richard Thaler has won. He's been very much a cheerleader for that, uh, and and for a long period of time, as you you hint at, behavioral economics was kind of the uh, the ugly member of the family. It was pushed to the side. A lot of people didn't buy it. A lot of people. Subscribed. When you say a lot of people, you mean a lot of people in academia, yeah, because academia, certainly in we, markets, anyone who's an investor knows that animal spirits and emotion play it. Very crucial role, but I think in mainstream because you couldn't put it in a formula, it was kind of rejected as a as not a, as not. It, it was a party trick, something that's interesting. Yeah, you know, I'll tell someone a good story at a dinner party, but it wasn't viewed as as important to the uh, to the mainstream economics. And now it quite clearly is, and it's been bought in by people like Richard Taylor, by people like Robert Schiller, and promoted by people like um, Mike, the author and Bloomberg View columnist Michael Lewis in in his new book. It's very important, and so it, you, along with the fun stories that are accessible and mean that this field of economics uh, is perhaps more popular, perhaps more interesting. I was talking to one colleague today who said his uh, his daughter was interested in it because it, it, the kind of free economics uh, I approach. was just going to mention that. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, uh, his book, uh, w- one of his many books, of Thaler's uh, many books that he co-authored, this one with uh, Cass Sunstein, uh, is uh, entitled uh, Nudge, right? Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Uh, do you believe that that had an influence on on the Nobel Committee that uh, would eventually uh, give him the prize? I think so. And it, in one way, it, it's already influenced how we live our lives. If you, In the last uh, decade, people like uh, Barack Obama in the White House, David Cameron in Downing Street in the UK, have turned to this kind of theory. This theory is that you can, you can do things, you, can change, you make small incentives, and you can change how people uh, behave, how vote. Uh, our consumers and voters uh, behave, and if you can do that in a time of a uh, of, of big budget deficits when you haven't got the money to spend to incentivize them, uh, you can you can quote unquote nudge them into into doing things. You know, in one example in the UK, um, they discovered that taxes were were paid quicker if you sent a letter to uh, to taxpayers saying everyone in your area or a lot of people in your area have already paid their taxes. Uh, and it, it kind of clicks something in someone's brain that well, if ever if my neighbors have done so, I better get get on that. And so they uh, sort of they like pay. being in a classroom in uh, in elementary school, and the teacher says, "Everyone else has cleaned up their desk. What about you?" Yeah, it's it's kind of guilt by uh, by by association, and uh, and yeah, I was talking, I was actually talking about this to my sons the other day. When you see a sign that says um, "police," uh, I don't know if you see them in America, but in the UK, you'll see these signs saying um, you're entering a police uh, traffic zone. Well, they might just have spent money on the uh, the sign, and that uh, there's no police uh, coming up. But does anyone uh, want to trust that? They want to. They're going to slow down. So it's all about tricking 
the 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 brain into behaving in a way that's uh, optimal for society. Does uh, does the work of, of Richard Taylor does it also include the idea that we have tricked ourselves into believing that we are rational, that we make decisions, and then what we do is we go and find evidence to fit the decisions that we've made. Not because it's true, but because it makes us feel good. Yeah, absolutely. You want to explain why you've done things. One area of his work is on quiz shows. So there's a quiz show called Deal or No Deal. And it turns out that actually people are, the, the further they go into the process, uh, their behavior or the choices of which briefcase to open up is is led by, did they get lucky earlier in, this, in the thing? If they feel they're, they're lucky earlier and they've got this, what's called the, the hot hand, they feel that they're, they're, they can continue. And so they take risks based on what's happened before even though the odds would suggest that they should uh, behave differently. Does that does that indicate in your mind that what has happened is we've used statistics in a way that can't necessarily predict the future, but we wish it did? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a... Because, uh, you know, you say, well, all right, yeah. the probability of something, but the probability of something is always yes or no. It's, you know, 50-50. But it doesn't matter how many times you flip the coin, that's still the probability, but statistics will tell you something else yeah and, and you know, one of the things that everyone was amused by this morning is he's been in the big short film uh talking about uh cdos and this idea that uh that you know he that he he brings this idea that you can uh, uh have a hot hand fallacy that 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 you you become more confident based on what's already been. Well, that can also lead to bad decisions in investments Absolutely. because if you find a manager and you look at the track record and you say, well, the manager's done great for the last 20 years, it has nothing really to do with the performance for the next year. And it doesn't necessarily mean you should drop that manager or add that manager. Exactly. And past performance no longer an indicator of future returns. Right. That goes right with the police <laughs> science, right? You know, the, the, the disclaimer. Uh, last thing to you, if you were to take this information and his body of work and try to apply it to the world of asset management, where would you come out? What would you take away from this? Well, I think he's already he's he's spent a lot of time on four hundred one programs and how they can uh, can be incentivized, how people can can save. You know, obviously savings is a huge thing. We all talk about getting our pension up. To opt in guys. versus opt out. Exactly. So you so you know, if you're a company, um, so traditionally, yeah, the paperwork comes in, you're so busy, and you never really opt in. And suddenly, time is taken. Whereas actually, people you know, have. Obviously, pensions are, are, are good things for most people. So therefore, if you have to opt out, if you have to send the paperwork to get out of the pension, it's more likely you'll be in the pension scheme. Uh, and do you have a copy of Nudge? I have a signed copy of Nudge. You have Nudge. a signed this copy a, of Nudge. The, the, joy that, the joy of the Nobel Prize today was that I'd actually, uh, I knew, I'm familiar with a lot of economists. Where was, there's someone I'm very familiar with, so we were able to write good stories on the basis that uh, he, he, he's very accessible. This is someone who, um, uh, it's not, he's not just for economists. All right. Thanks very much. Uh, Simon Kennedy, part of our Bloomberg economics team, much appreciated. The author of uh, uh, Richard Thaler, the author of Nudge, winner of the Nobel Prize of Economics. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.